1: Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about worldviews and world religions. And of course, we talk about history and prophecy. We talk about Well, current events, and if you'd like to join me on the program with your question about, well, a difficult Bible passage or some other issue, um, by all means, give me a call, 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program, 303-873-1935. Just a couple of things in the news, and of course, uh, happy to take your call. And like I said, friendly producer, Jim, is standing by to take your phone call. Um, obviously, there was a meeting today between the foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine, but that meeting yielded no tangible, substantial ceasefire Britain froze the assets of a Russian oligarch named Roman Abramovich and six other Russian oligarchs. Goldman Sachs became the first big American bank to pull out of Russia. And so uh, we expect a lot to continue to, to go on. My friends at Samaritan's Purse have set up an emergency field hospital In Ukraine. Uh, Samaritan's Purse is reporting that they've set up this uh, field hospital in an underground parking garage in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. And of course, many of you are very familiar with Franklin Graham, who obviously is a part of the Billy Graham crusade, but also the president of Samaritan's Purse. He said in a statement that the uh, group has already put up about 100 medical and logistical workers in place in Ukraine and Poland and Romania and Moldova. And he said that uh, they were going to be sending more help to those areas in the not-too-distant future. So good on him. 303-873-1935. Like I said, that's the number. I have open lines. If you've ever wanted to call in with your question, now would be a great time to do it because the chances of you getting in is very, very good. 303-873-1935. And um, just a couple of other quick notes. Um, You know, over the last couple of days, I've been talking about this issue of only four... Per, this is according to um, r- new research from Arizona Christian University. That fa- And this is alarming. And it, it may not seem all that important to you, but let me help you understand why it's important that only 4% of Christian parents have a biblical worldview according to the poll. And so what we're talking about is this huge disadvantage of their children. According to the new research from Arizona Christian University, less than 5% of American parents who claim to be Christian possess what's called a biblical worldview. Now, you and I have talked a lot about worldview. Remember, worldview is a way of looking at the world. Everybody has one. It's a set uh, by James Sire, he says it's it's a set of presuppositions, assumptions, which may be true or partially true or entirely false, which, are, which we hold either consciously or subconsciously or consistently and inconsistently as we're trying to ask and answer the big questions um, about, you know, is there a God? What's real? Where did we come from? What does it mean to be a human being? And... According to this research, it showed that most parents are likely to hold a syncretistic belief system. This is something that would blend several or multiple worldviews. And I'll have more to talk about this. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Let's see who's up. Rocky, welcome to the program. Yes.
2: Yeah, Hi. Guess hello yeah hi
1: how can i help you
2: okay so so i I wanted to talk to you about in revelation 9 okay uh god or or the angel is basically telling lucifer that he can't that he can't harm anybody with the seal of god on their forehead so the question is is, aren't we, so aren't we supposed to be raptured, you know, before the great tribulation starts?
1: Well, um, those, I, I suspect that there's going to be a group of people who come into a right relationship with God after the rapture. And right. so what it seems to be, this seems to be a, uh, the, this group of 144,000 plus people who get mm-hmm. saved during the tribulation.
2: Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense.
1: And so so when it says that they have a job to do or they have a role to play, that's why they are going to be given a pass, if you will. Now, that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that the pass will last forever because in Revelation chapter 9 that – that there's a series of judgments that take place, but also there's a group of witnesses um, who emerge at the end of of chapter eight and uh, who will who are going to be talked about um, in later on in chapter eleven. But so there's a groups of people who are going to be making and advocating the gospel. During the tribulation, and I suspect again that these are men and women, almost certainly Jews, right. who receive Christ as their Savior, and all of a sudden come to the realization: "Oh, wait a minute! We were wrong about Jesus."
2: Right, absolutely. Oh, it's not going to be amazing though that, that when when that epiphany takes place.
1: Yeah, and obviously it's miraculous whenever it takes place. Even now it's a miraculous yep. thing where you know whether you're Jewish or Gentile, where you come to the that realization, "Oh, wait a minute. You mean what right. the Bible says about my sin and about a need for a savior? You mean it's all true?" Right. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is amazing though, isn't he? Amen. Hey, thank you for Amen your call.
2: And thank you for your help. I appreciate you, sir.
1: Hey, you are welcome. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. We were talking a little bit about a study that was released on on Tuesday by uh, the, the Arizona Christian University. And it found, again that only 2% of all parents of preteens in the United States possess a b- biblical worldview. And although two-thirds of those parents are self-identified as Christians, only 4% of that group held a biblical worldview. And you might be asking me, well, what do you mean by a biblical worldview? And what I mean by that is that you hold a view that's consistent with what the Bible says about the most important questions, like what's real? Is there a God? Where did we come from? How should we live? Where are we going? That's what I mean. Three zero three eight seven three nineteen thirty five. 873 1935 Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. You know the number. It's 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. I was talking about a recent uh, study that's come out by Arizona Christian University, which talked about worldviews and belief systems and the startling information Dare I say, most self-identified Christians don't have what appears to be a coherent biblical worldview. And by coherent, I mean that it makes sense. In other words, a worldview that claims the only truth we can know is that there's no truth that's a contradiction. That belief is self-contradictory. So in order for a worldview to be coherent, it needs to make sense. It means to be, it has to be logical. So again, you can't have a worldview where you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but you also believe in reincarnation because according to the Bible, the Bible's solution to the problem of, of sin is faith in Christ and the belief in a resurrection. And so if you are a Christian, but you believe in reincarnation, then you have what's called an incoherent or inconsistent worldview. And so again, the number's 303 873 1935. And so when this study was done, it basically pointed out that parents with children under the age of 13 who took the inventory, the vast majority of them did not have a biblical worldview. And um, I'm thinking it was um, George Barna who said, and I quote the reality, wait, that's not the quote I'm looking for. He said, the typical American parent is either fully unaware that there is a worldview development process, or they are aware that their child is developing a worldview, but they don't take responsibility for a role in that process, George Barnes said. He said, quote, or they are aware the child's worldview is being developed, but choose or allow outsiders to... To accomplish that duty on the parent's behalf, unquote. So if you're a Christian and you say, well, you know what? I'm just going to let my child grow up and decide whatever they want to believe. That means that you are not taking your role seriously. Because part of your role as a parent is, in fact, not to indoctrinate your children, but rather to impart to them a biblical worldview. Because it's true. Now, the researcher further found that the younger the parent, the less likely they are to have a a biblical worldview, which is pretty alarming. And so based on that, George Barna, who's been doing this for a very, very long time, called the individuals with children who aren't imparting a biblical worldview— that these children are spiritually disadvantaged. But still, George Barna says he has hope for the future. He says, and I quote, the reality is that culture-changing movements can transform a nation with as little as 2% of the population on board. Turning around the paucity of commitment to the biblical worldview cannot, he said, quote, we estimate that there are perhaps listen carefully, 10 to 15 million adults in the country who have a biblical worldview and therefore might be engaged in such a worldview transformation effort, unquote. So if you are a person listening to my voice and you have a biblical worldview, you are in the gross minority. In other words, the vast majority of people don't share your worldview, and so obviously one of the uh, one of the things about a Christian worldview is not just that you believe in God, but what you believe about. God. So again, Christianity's answers to the big questions of life are more hopeful, meaningful, and robust than the other worldviews. And so, you know, again, people have have broken worldview down into different categories or comparisons. Some people have uh, have put it in in as In as few as, well, all of those worldviews where there's a God and all of those worldviews where there is no God. But in the worldview where there is no God, that's called atheism. And so in atheism, there is no God. And so when you ask and answer the question to the atheist, what's real? they'll say, well, physical matter and energy are the only reality. Well, where did that come from? And the answer is, we don't know. Well, what does it mean to be a human being? Human beings are the product of evolution. Are human beings basically good or evil? How bad is the flaw? For many atheists, people can be either good or bad, but for some, they could even go so far as to say, That good and bad is an artificial construct. It's a social construct that human beings make up in order to regulate their behavior one with another. And so, make no mistake about it, everyone has a worldview. Everyone thinks about what it means you know, how you interpret reality. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Kit, welcome to the program.
3: Welcome. I'm reading uh, O.C. Hawkins' book, Finding Jesus in Every Book of the Bible. Right. And in chapter 20, Finding Jesus in Ezekiel, He really gives the impression that the Shekinah glory, which uh, was once in the pillar of fire and in God's presence in the temple and all, is now uh, in us as believers. And I just haven't seen it that way before, if that's correct or not, or maybe...
1: Well, again, it depends on what you mean both by what we're talking about in Ezekiel and um, and what it means that God dwells with the believer. Jesus, remember, he told his disciples that, that the Father would be with you and that the Father would be in you. In Ezekiel chapter 37, um, it says, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations, among which they've gone, and they will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them, and they shall no longer be two nations and no longer have a divided kingdom. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. My dwelling place shall be with them. So, in So when it says the nations will know that I'm the Lord who sanctifies Israel, there's this sense in which Ezekiel prophesies the presence of God, both with his people and in his people. Um, you, Do you mind holding? No. Good, because in order for us to have this conversation, we're going to have to continue it after the break. Um, so, yeah, to, to answer your question, in, in what way... Is that true? We'll, we'll have to talk about it. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be right back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. We're talking with Kit. So let's, let's go back to your original question, okay? And that is, how do we think about Jesus in Ezekiel? So let's let's begin there, and let, so that we can understand, what do you think? It, where is Jesus in the book of Ezekiel? Well, he's
3: uh... well. I haven't, I haven't read the whole book. I was just uh, reading well,
1: this chapter. Sure, I sure. To... I I I think the way that I would think about it is just like in the book of Ezekiel, you know, um, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. And over and over again in Ezekiel, there's a reference to Ezekiel as the son of man. Other than than, uh, the son of David, son of man is Jesus's very favorite expression of himself. Right, And so... Again, in my view, when God is speaking in the book of Ezekiel, Jesus is speaking, because Jesus is God. And so, um, in Ezekiel 48, it says, in the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. So, Jesus is the promise in Ezekiel. Um in Ezekiel 18, for every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son, both alike belong to me. And then it says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. In other words, that same Jesus, that the sovereign God, the same Jesus, is the same Jesus in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, when we ask the, the, your your question, is Jesus present in the book? I think that the answer is yes, because Jesus says on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he says, you search the scriptures and in them that you, you, you think that you find life, but they're those which testify about me. So I don't have a problem with Jesus being in the book of Ezekiel. Oh no. Now. So when we ask and we answer the question, well, is Is Jesus present in the believer? What do you think the answer is?
3: Well, yes, in the in the presence of the Holy Spirit.
1: Right, but the Holy Spirit isn't Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. But but so it so when we say the Shekinah or the Shekinah. The Shekinah was the visible presence of God to the Jews. In Correct. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul writes, he says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So the the way that I would think about that is that Jesus is present in some way in the believer. In Romans 8, 9, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. To your point, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So is the Spirit of Christ Christ or is the Spirit of Christ another name for the Holy Spirit? Whether or not um, it's one or the other, in Colossians one twenty seven it says to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Colossians chapter one verse twenty seven. So if your question is, is the Shekinah glory the same as
3: the Holy Spirit? Well, to me, it seemed like it was
1: it was not. Well, again, that word Shekinah doesn't appear in the Bible, the way that we're talking about it, the Jewish rabbis coined that expression. It, 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 it's a form of a Hebrew word that literally meant "He causes to dwell," and and so it came to mean signifying a divine visitation of the presence or dwelling of the Lord on the earth. So the the Shekinah was first evident when the Israelites set out from Sukkot in their escape from Egypt. And you'll remember the Lord appeared in a cloudy pillar during the day and a fiery pillar by night. So when we ask and we answer the question, does the believer have a cloudy pillar and a fiery pillar? I'm going to suggest to you that we really don't. But... (laughs) Do we have the presence? Do we have God's presence? I think we do. Yes. In... But, but but again, the <laughs> visible manifestation of God's presence is something different. Can you tell if a person has Christ in them just by looking at them? No,
3: not not just by looking, but,
1: but there might you be. Can see it sometimes. Yeah, I think that there are sometimes manifestations in the sense that you understand that this person is a Christian, that this person is a lover of Jesus or a believer in Jesus. Yeah, correct. But again, Jesus, I think, is the dwelling place of God's glory and the reason why i think that is because of colossians chapter 2 verse 9 where it says in christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form jesus told philip anyone who has seen me has seen the father so in christ we see the visible manifestation of god himself in the second person of the trinity and that even though in his earthly life that glory is veiled, Jesus is the presence of God on, the, on earth. So is Jesus the presence of God on earth? In, in his earthly ministry, that was true. Is Jesus the presence of God in the heart of the believer? I, I think that the answer is yes. But, again, is there some, you know, remember you see pictures of at the, in the manger where the baby is glowing in the manger. But so do we glow? Is there some sort of physical manifestation? I, I think that the answer is no. But I think that the Shekinah remains veiled, at this point. So I'm not sure what you the person you're talking about was talking about. So well, I'm
3: looking I'm looking at it more
1: towards in the New Jerusalem. Where well in the New Jerusalem
3: and God will be there you
1: know in well, her glory I, I think it's safe to say so let's talk about two things. In the New Jerusalem, if you mean by that the eternal state In other words, we're in heaven where we see both the Father and the Son. The Shekinah is no longer veiled. In other words, it's visible. It's apparent. It's obvious. So I wouldn't have a problem with suggesting that the Shekinah, that there will come a time in the life of the believer where the Shekinah is no longer veiled. But I would argue that it's veiled right now. Does that help?
3: Well, yes, yeah, it is. I just, it never in 45 years have been a believer ever tied the Shekinah with <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit in it.
1: Well, hey, thank you for your call. Well, you're welcome. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number, again, is 303 873 1935 happy to take your call. And, um, you know, when I was talking with Kit about the Shekinah glory, um, that word, like, like I said earlier, doesn't really appear in the Bible, but the concept is present. And, and we have an article at gotquestions.org and there you'll find a little bit more information about that concept. And there in the article, you'll discover that the Jewish rabbis coined this extra biblical expression. It was a form of a Hebrew word that literally meant he caused to dwell, signifying that it was a divine visitation of the presence of the Lord on the earth. And later it talks about that, how God spoke to Moses out of the pillar of cl- of, of a cloud in Exodus chapter 33, assuring him that his presence would be with the Israelites. So God, speaking to Moses in the pillar of the cloud, assures Moses that he's going to be with the children of Israel in verse 9. Verse 11 says that God spoke to Moses face-to-face out of the cloud. But when Moses asked to see God's glory, God told him, you can't see my face for no one shall see me and live, in verse 20. So apparently the visible manifestation of God's glory was somewhat veiled or muted or muffled, if you will. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covered him with his hand as he passed by. Then he removed his hand, and Moses saw only what... (laughs) The Old Testament calls his hinder parts, which means his back. That would seem to indicate that God's glory is too awesome and powerful to be seen by human beings. So the visible manifestation of God's presence was seen not only by the Israelites, but by the Egyptians. It says in Exodus chapter 14, verse 24 and 25, it says, during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, quote, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting fighting for them against Egypt, unquote. So just the presence of God's Shekinah glory was enough to convince his enemies that he was someone who shouldn't be resisted. In the final paragraph of our article, it got questions It says this on that subject. It says, quote, In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God's glory. Colossians 2.9 says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, causing Jesus to exclaim to Philip, quote, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14.9. In Christ, we see the visible manifestation of God himself in the second person of the Trinity. Although his glory was also veiled, Jesus is nonetheless the presence of God on earth. And just as the divine presence dwelled in a relatively plain tent called the tabernacle before the temple in Jerusalem was built, so did the presence dwell in the relatively plain man who was Jesus. It says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In Isaiah 53, verse 2, it says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But of course, when we get to heaven, you'll see the sun in his glory. And the Shekinah will no longer be veiled. It says in 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we're God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we, sh- we shall see him as he is. 303 873 35. That's the number if you'd like to join me on the program. And you know, earlier I was talking about um, this idea of asking Jesus into your heart is it biblical? Is this a, a biblical concept? to talk about or to think about or to even invite Jesus into your heart. Now, again, when we use that term, do you want to be saved or ask Jesus into your heart? Now, the statement isn't anti-biblical, but it isn't expressly biblical in the sense, is there a chapter in a verse where you can point to that says, and this is how you ask Jesus into your heart? no but again there seems to be some fairly good evidence that this is just a way of saying inviting Jesus into your life so some people might think like well what what are you talking about does the literal Jesus come into the, the muscle that's inside your chest. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. So the expression that Christ may dwell in your hearts, it means in your whole body. Person, The parallel prayer in verse 16 is that God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So there's no evangelistic appeal in the context of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul isn't telling the Ephesians to ask Jesus into their hearts. He's elevating their awareness that Jesus is present within them by the power of, and through the Holy Spirit, the power and presence. So the verse uh, from which the Ask Jesus Into Your Heart concept is usually taken is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You'll remember it says, Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Notice that Again, the verse doesn't mention the heart at all. Neither does the individual ask Jesus to do anything. Jesus asks us to do something. In context, Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, who was in desperate need of repentance. And the Laodiceans had effectively excluded Jesus from their fellowship. And the Lord was seeking to restore that fellowship. So the idea of Jesus coming into your heart is more in, in terms of uh, the reception of Jesus. The Bible says that you're to believe in Jesus, that you're to receive him in John 1.12. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So, again, asking Jesus into your heart is a simple way of, of saying Invite Jesus into your life or allow Him to take control of your life. So, is it wrong to ask a person to receive Christ? No, not at all. 303 873 1935, that's my number. If you'd like to join me on the program, happy to take your call. I'll be back taking your calls, answering your questions.